Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number smart bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 smart bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. We have to prepare them for when, not if, they encounter content that is inappropriate or makes them uncomfortable or, you know, or whatever, whatever the content is. Because you can lock down every device, right? But it doesn't mean that when your kid is riding on the bus, that the kid sitting next to them has a device that's locked down. All they have to do is pull up the phone yes. and show them something on the device. I mean, I, I have met with parents who tell stories about being super restrictive, trying to protect their children from everything that's out there. And then, you know, their youth group at church. Yes. You know, absolutely. Somebody's, somebody's showing them a video that they're they found on their brother's iPad. So I think that it's really important to, to approach this from a very rational, common sense way. Hello, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctorate in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Juliana Miner, who is a former adjunct professor of public health, a blogger behind Rants of Mommyland, the author of Raising a Screen Smart Kid, Embrace the Good and Avoid the Bad in the Digital Age. Juliana, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, of course. Now, we had connected a while back. I know both of us have been parenting influencers for Responsibility.org, and we saw each other even just recently <laughs> talking um, about, you know, responsibility, and and it kind of got me thinking about your book, Raising a Screen Smart Kid. Um, obviously, I have, you know, we're both moms, and, you know, people who are listening out there, um, you know, could have multiple kids, too, that are, that are also trying to struggle with trying to figure out how to raise kids in this digital age we live in. We can't avoid it. Technology is, you know, kind of taking over, you know, all the new generations that are coming along. Um, and even our own generation, even though we didn't grow up with it, you know, now, you know, they're getting phones earlier, they're, you know, getting emails and iPads and schools and things like that. So I really just wanted to pick your brain on, you know, how we as parents can be responsible when it comes to screen use and what we can do to help protect our kids. So, the first question I have is, how do we keep our kids safe online from various content and even online predators? You know, I, I know, you know, some kids are very innocent and they want to, you know, just type in something like, you know, they hear on Disney movies, you know, true love's kiss. And so they might type in true love's kiss on Google and they may see some things that come up on the other end that they weren't prepared to see yet, um, whether they're too young or whether it's, you know, more on the pornographic side or something like that. Um, even if we do parental controls, what have you found and, you know, from your book and your research on, you know, how, how, what we can do and how we can keep our kids safe online? Well, I let's let's break that down into sort of two different areas, right? One is content and one is predators and sort of threatening people like bad actors that they might encounter. Sure. So let's you want to start with content? 
Yes, that'd be great. Um, when my oldest, she's now in college, but when she was, I think maybe fourth grade, um, at her school, every year in fourth grade, you had to do a project on on family history, on your sort of your ancestry. Oh, yes. And, um, my ancestors are from Lithuania. So she did all this research on Lithuania. She was creating a poster board and she wanted to print some pictures of um, these Lithuanian folk dancers that she'd seen because they looked like her. They had like the same hair and the same braids and they had colorful costumes. So we're sitting at the kitchen table working on her project and she Google image searches Lithuanian dancer. Right. Um, I had parental controls set up. It, it did not protect uh, that, that particular search from all of the images that mm. maybe she hadn't looked at. So, I mean, I think it's really easy for kids to come across things even when the intent is totally innocent. Right. Um, I mean, I know I've come across things with no idea that I was going to click on something and then see what I saw. Right. So um, there's a couple of things that we can do. It is very, very relevant if you have younger kids um, and they are on your devices, that you have all of the this the parental settings in place on every device that your kid could possibly have access to. That's a good um, idea. And uh, you might not think you need it on your phone or your husband might not need it on his phone. Um, doesn't matter. Put it on there anyway. Yeah. Um, the second thing is the younger the child, the more restrictive you should probably be with their technology use in terms of them having autonomy over the device. Um, it is possible to lock down certain elements of your phone or certain apps um, so that they don't have access to them. And I would suggest doing that. Um, I Listen, if I had had access to an iPad when my kids were little and we had to get on an airplane or, you know, wait in the doctor's right. waiting room for half an hour, like, I definitely <laughs> would have used it. Um, uh, but I, I do think it's important in terms of them having autonomy over the device, right? So it's they're watching a YouTube video and they have the ability to navigate within the app to get to another video that you are really um, more eyes on and more hands on with that, the younger they are. Right. Um, yes. And and I agree with that. And I'm going to cut you off, but I was just thinking that, you know, like I said, my second grader, um, my preschooler doesn't really have much access to any of those things. He has a, a like a little iPad that he'll use once in a while. Um, you know, that he, I think there is a search on there maybe, but he, since he doesn't know how to spell yet, I have to pretty much do it for him, you know? So mm -hmm. I feel a little safer with that. But my second grader, you know, she was, she actually, she got her first iPad, um, her for, first school iPad that belongs to the school in, um, kindergarten. And this year, you know, she's had friends emailing her, um, sending pictures via email, you know, different things that I thought, oh, my gosh, I didn't think I'd have to deal with this in the second grade, you know, because I've we haven't done phones yet. We haven't done any of that yet. Um, but because it's on the school iPad, I think she feels it's like a, a safer place. But then she'll tell me she does all these Google searches for images or things to do like a little report. And it's very innocent. Um, but I'm thinking, oh, gosh, like it really made me think I need to start doing something about this to kind of take take a little more control over just her having her iPad in her room and having full use of it, you know? Yeah, I, I think that the pandemic fundamentally changed um, our interaction with technology, uh, certainly because of the switch to online learning. Kids at a really young age are being forced to interact with technology again, in autonomous ways, because we can't be there with them every second that they're they're online for school, um, but before anybody was really prepared to deal with it. Right. Um, 
And we just have to adapt as best we can. And so fortunately, most schools are really, really good at locking down the devices that they send home. And we can be equally good about locking down our own devices. But it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily protect our kids because just as we can't, you know, bubble wrap the world to keep them safe, we can't smooth out every road so that it's easier for them to travel on. Like we have to prepare them for when, not if, they encounter content that is inappropriate or makes them uncomfortable or, you know, or whatever, whatever the content is. Because you can lock down every device, right? But it doesn't mean that when your kid is riding on the bus, that the kid sitting next to them has a device that's locked down. All they have to do is pull up the phone yes. and show them something on the device. I mean, I, I have met with parents who tell stories about being super restrictive, trying to protect their children from everything that's out there. And then, you know, their youth group at church. Yes. You know, somebody's, somebody's showing them a video that they're they found on their brother's iPad. So I think that it's really important to, to approach this from a very rational, common sense way, which is that they're going to encounter stuff, right? It could be completely innocent that they go looking for a topic and wind up on a website they hadn't planned on. Or it could be that, you know, one of their stinky friends shows them something and, and they have to respond to it. So I think we lock down devices, we have conversations about responsibility, and we also say, this is what you might see. This is, you know, define what pornography is. If your kid is old enough to have access to the internet, mm. you have to have that conversation. Right. And, and you, you hopefully are already having conversations about, you know, protective body autonomy, right? Like the parts of their body that are covered by bathing suits, good and bad touches. And you can extend that age appropriate level of conversation to things that they might see. They could also see something violent or scary, right? It doesn't have True. to necessarily be about pornography, but the amount of the internet that is just straight porn is horrifying. Yeah. Horrifying. yeah. And a little bit will be blocked out with your parental settings, but you know, there's just so much out there. And the, the news right now can be really frightening. I mean, there's images of, of you know, maternity hospitals being bombed and, right. you know, women and babies dying. And um, it's, it's very easy for them to come across things that are frightening. And so talk about what happens when you see something that scares you, what happens um, when you see something that upsets you or that you know is inappropriate? How do you want to react? Um, what that. can you do? And um, I would also just be aware that many times kids are reluctant to tell you when they come across something upsetting because they don't want to kind of tip their hat that maybe they had done something that they shouldn't have been doing. Right. You know, they were looking when they shouldn't have or looking at something that they shouldn't have. And I mean, we know kids are curious. Um, this is a great source of information, probably the best and most immediate source of information they have access to. So it's very natural that they would seek out answers on the internet, you know, or using their digital devices. So I think it's important um, when you're having these conversations to say, if you come across something like this, you know, please don't hesitate to tell me, like maybe have a rule in place that says like, you won't get in trouble. Um, that's just, true. You know, when we talk to our teenagers about drunk driving, you know, when you sign those contracts with them saying, I promise not to get into a car with someone who's been drinking, part of that contract is they're not going to be penalized for making the right and safe choice to have you come pick them up. Right. Exactly. So I think you can you can extend that 
that framework to these discussions and say, if it's something that like is hurting your feelings or is um, making you feel really uncomfortable, like we're going to look at it as a learning experience and we're just going to have a conversation about it and you will get in trouble because kids will absolutely hide things and, and even lie about them if they think that telling the truth will, um, will result in them losing their device or losing access to the device or the app. So I would approach it from, from both ways, like take advantage of the technology that protects them in terms of setting um, limits and locks um, and restrictions on the actual device, and then also have lots of conversations and plans in place for when, not if, they encounter content that is not appropriate or upsetting. I love that. And I love that you're focusing on the conversation piece, you know, the parent-child attachment or the parent-child relationship and having that open conversation, having that trusting, safe relationship where they can have open conversations about those types of things. Because like you said, it's not if, it's when it's going to happen. And things seem to be happening a lot sooner than I ever thought they were as a parent. I thought, oh, I have at least a couple of years before I have to worry about this or that. And now that I'm in it, And I'm thinking, wow, she's only eight, my daughter, and she's already, you know, um, I'm already at that point where I'm having to have these conversations with her because, you know, again, I thought it was going to be, I thought this, I had years on me, (laughs) but I don't. Um, So things are happening now and they're happening a lot quicker. And even just things with, um, you know, like you said, with the the war going on and just different things, even with the pandemic. um, I know when COVID started, you know, and we would watch the news, I mean, she would have tons of questions about that. So, um, you know, and then just innocently, like there was a really cute baby video I saw on TikTok the other day. And I was like, oh, you have to see this cute baby video on TikTok. And I was showing her and I, I really rarely ever let her see my social medias because I do think she's too young for that. And she doesn't have her own accounts or anything like that. But um, we were watching this cute baby video. And then all of a sudden the next video, you know, she swiped it because she knows how to do that. And the next video, like two seconds in before I could even my brain could process it before I could stop it was the F word <laughs> and which we don't do in our house. And we, you know, and, and I know every, every family's different and, you know, but for us, we just don't use that word. And, you know, she doesn't really know what that word is. So luckily it kind of went over her head. But still, I'm thinking, gosh, I innocently showed this cute little, you know, um, baby video on TikTok. And then she swiped. And within uh, the first second of the video, the F word comes on. Um, and I thought, gosh, there's there's no sensory <laughs> um, or censorship on these some of these apps. And, you know, I quickly, you know, closed out of the account and I've never showed her TikTok again since. But I think, gosh, like those things are going to happen even for, for us parents that might just be innocently trying to show her something cute. And then the next, next thing, you know, she's seeing something else, you know? So oh, yeah, it happens. It happens really easily and it happens to pretty much every kid. And yeah. TikTok is such an important example because I think um, we saw rates of TikTok and we saw market saturation, particularly among um, younger users, really take off during the pandemic with TikTok. And it's now sort of the dominant form of social media as the dominant platform for um, for kids and teenagers in the U.S., um, surpassing Snapchat, which had been, you know, the preferred social media of choice for teenagers for, you know, close to five years prior to that. Um, so parents who are really concerned about you know, the books that their kids read or seeing inappropriate content or whatever, and then also allow their kids to have TikTok, to me, it makes no sense because the the things that they're going to see on TikTok, just the song lyrics. Oh, 100%. Doing dances to like you, you need to be consistent in your approach. And while I think that you can get a lot of, of positive things out of TikTok, if you use it the right way, there's a lot of 
there are a lot of stuff on TikTok that younger yeah. kids should probably not be seeing unless you are on it with them while they're scrolling, because that algorithm is very precise and it is very powerful. And if they see something that strikes their curiosity, that algorithm is going to feed them more and more and more. And it True. can very quickly go from, I'm, you know, just looking at accounts about pugs and huskies to really like dark side stuff. And it can mm-hmm. happen pretty quickly. Exactly. So let's go back to the predator side of things. Oh, um, sure, yeah. Because I want to talk about things like Minecraft, uh, Roblox, you know, the different things that I know kids are playing. Um, and that you can have even to, not so much. That's more like, I guess, the more video game type side of things. I know other things can happen too, where someone can pretend to be someone and befriend them on Facebook or so other types of social media um, and then be a predator that way. But also with the gaming um, industry and, you know, playing with playing a game like that with someone out there who might be a, an adult predator you know, and playing this game thinking it's another kid or, you know, um, what kind of conversations should we be having with kids to protect them from those types of predators? I think we need to really fundamentally change how we have these conversations and look at risk from um, bad actors or people with bad intentions just a little differently. Um, and I I spoke with with law enforcement officers, people who work in digital child protection, um, for the book. And the thing to keep in mind is that online risk mirrors real life risk, right? So right. a lot of risk for bullying, harassment, solicitation is going to come from people that your kids know, right? And in fact, it could be coming from other kids. So let's let's keep that in mind, right? So that's one way we need to focus conversation is that people that you know in real life can behave badly, very differently, um, and in ways that you do not expect when they're experiencing a level of disinhibition because they are playing a game or behind a screen. Right. Um, so it's important for them to understand how to interact with people, how to respond to um, things that happen online with people that they know. And inherent in that is how kids respond to people that they know versus a stranger, right? It, it, there's mm-hmm. there's an accountability when it's someone they know. There may also be fear of a social consequence, right? At, at school or on a team or whatever. So um, it can, you know, just the trash talking in video games. Um, you know, I have a teenage son. The things they say to each other and he's like, what? It's like part of the pol- culture of the game. I'm like, oh, it's, it sounds terrible. Yeah, it's intense. <laughs> um, so it's, I think that we have to have some real understanding of that. Right. Okay. Um, your kids could be experience a very, could have a very bad experience at a sleepover or a party with someone they know. Your kids could have a very bad experience online with someone they know. And they, and you need to discuss that with them, um, how to respond to it. And again, have those, that open conversation, that trust and, and two-way communication is really critical. There's no perfect defense in terms of arming our kids with how to stay safe. But the best defense is a good relationship with your kid where they trust you enough to tell you things that are hard to say and arming your kid with the knowledge and the confidence to protect themselves first, right? Because truly they're walking into this digital space, just like they're walking out your front door. They have to use their head, you know, they have to be aware of what's going on. They have to have a degree of situational awareness. They have to have um, an understanding 
before they step out the door of what is acceptable and what's not, what is, you know, morally okay for them to bear witness to and not, right? If they see someone else getting harassed or bullied. Um, And so that's the best thing we can do. They have to be their their own best self-advocate. And it's really hard for kids to do that. It's hard when you're in elementary school and it gets really hard in middle school where you start to really hit those formative stages of both you know, emotional and physical and cognitive development. And you're like super self-conscious and negotiating a million different things all at the same time. Um, so it is really important during those stages that we are paying attention to how our kids are doing, you know, because if they're experiencing something difficult online, they may not have they may not want to tell you about it. They may not be able to articulate why it's making them uncomfortable. So in those cases, like you want to be paying attention to their behavior and their demeanor, because that is also a form of communication, especially when like the words may be hard to come. Exactly. Um, So is that something parents should look out for when it comes to, you know, um, obviously when we think about, and I know you you touched about this in your books, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and, and what you found out about it. But um, with social media increasing high-risk behaviors, depression, anxiety, um, possibly even suicidal behaviors, you know, things like that, maybe maybe stemming from um, uh, cyberbullying, you know, wherever it comes from. What, what have you found out as far as, you know, increased social use, social media use and or just screen time, um, finding, you know, what's out there and kind of seeing different types of content um, in correlation to those types of things and those types of behaviors and things that parents could pay attention to to see if there is a mood shift or if there's different changes they can see in their behavior? Well, I kind of separate the mental health and the overall well-being aspect from the risk behaviors. Um, but I mean, clearly social media use, um, impacts kids levels of, of depression and FOMO and loneliness. Um, I kind of describe it as a seesaw, right. As like, imagine it as a seesaw where you look at the technology and objectively it's, it's not all good or bad. It's both, right? right. It can be both at the same time and it can really sort of tip back and forth quickly between the two, right? So on the one hand, you have kids using technology to learn. You have kids using technology to connect with friends, to build social capital, to enrich their friendships, to to like learn how to do dances or make muffins or train their dog, right? Right. Um, and then you also have kids who are not feeling socially enriched by it. They're it's it's compounding their social isolation. It's making them feel left out. Um, and really what the data tells us is that if we can teach our kids about those tipping points, right, that point at which you're using you're using the technology just enough that it's enhancing your life, but it's not overwhelming your life or consuming too much of your time or taking you away from real life relationships and interests and activities, that that's really where you want to, that's where you want to be, right? Is the right in that balance point between the two. And those tipping points are going to be different for everyone. Sure. Um, And they're going to be different as your kid gets older, as they change friend groups, as they change interests and, and things that they're doing. I mean, I have a seventh grader and I have college students it's going to be real different for both of them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I think that if you kind of approach it like that, um, because I mean, it's like hating this technology is kind of like hating rain, you know, like I don't 
I don't love that we're here, but like I have to live with it. So yes, um, I have to just figure out when to carry an umbrella. <laughs> I like that. Um, well, let's talk about that for a second, because I was actually in a, in a group of moms the other day just talking. We were having like a lunch together and somehow th- this topic came up and, you know, saying how much time does your child spend on, on screens each day and how much is your child spend? And again, these are younger child, you know, um, elementary age, probably maybe even like preschool to elementary age. And there was like this debate going on of how much time, you know, someone should spend and some of the parents were getting defensive saying, well, I don't have a choice. You know, I'm, I'm working from home. And so sometimes my, my kids on this, you know, their device more than I want them to be, but I don't have a choice. Or like you said, sometimes when you're on an airplane or you know, there's definitely times when devices do come in real handy, <laughs> you know? Um, so, but is there some, is, is there uh, such thing as tech addiction and is there, um, you know, what what can we do about it? What you know, how does that happen in a child's brain where they might be on their device a lot more than they should be, but there's almost an addictive factor to it? Um, so if you could talk about that a little bit about tech addiction and how that happens, and then also what parents can do about it and try and help their child kind of get out of that cycle. Sure. Um, yeah, well, tech addiction is absolutely real, um, uh, according to the DSM. Gaming addiction is the only technical addition that's that's formally recognized, and right. uh, criteria for diagnosing gaming addiction is very similar to um, gambling because they're behavioral addictions, right? They're not chemical addictions like cocaine, but the impact of it is very similar. It's things like you know, are you losing interest in other things? Are your um, relationships and your ability to work being impacted? Are you know, do you find that you need more and more of it to have the same feeling? Are you experiencing withdrawal effects? Um, I think that technology can definitely be addictive. And there are certain, you know, types of people or types of behavior that might be more likely to experience that. I think it's important for parents to to think about a couple things, right? Especially with younger kids. When you tell a kid to stop playing Minecraft, I call it like the the stop playing Minecraft monster. Like yeah. your lovely child turns into a complete demon when you tell yes. them to stop. Or you say like, you're going to stop in five minutes. Right. And then five minutes later, they're like, no, 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 five more minutes. And then you turn off the game and they just lose their mind. Full meltdown. Yep. Full meltdown, right? So I think that we see that behavior. And then um, we say, my child is addicted to Minecraft, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. the, the withdrawal afterward is like the, the coming down from the game is so unpleasant for everyone. Um, but I would just like to say that, that that response doesn't necessarily indicate an addiction. It's like a, a child going from a very stimulating, pleasant activity to a less, you know, two less stimulating and happy activities. So, I mean, my kids, when I used to try and take them off the playground, they would just like scream and they would go like that transition is difficult. So you, you have to understand that like to an immature, still developing brain, you have to like, you have to work with them and with what they've got to make that transition, something that they feel in control of and make it as pleasant as you can. So, you know, I would reward every time your kid transitions in a positive way. I would transition them from the game to um, to another activity really quickly. Um, And if it could be something that involves their whole body, great. So if it's like, go walk the dog or please go run up the stairs and brush your teeth and come back downstairs. Right. Um, Or 
help me with this. And if you can, um, every time that they do it without an issue, reward, praise, whatever, because 100%. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's great for them. Um, so tech addiction is real. So I think there's a difference between um, kids having to transition out of preferred activities. Um, and also another suggestion for that is if your kid is someone who has trouble with transitions in general, there are things that you can do to make it easier. You can use an egg timer or a countdown clock so that they can visualize the passage of time. Exactly. Yes. Um, instead of just saying, um, I have ADHD and, um, if I am like in my hyper-focused state working on something, I have no ability to tell what five minutes is. Right. Of course. Right. <laughs> and I get really irritated when people want me to do things for them, like make dinner or drive them to school. Right. <laughs> I'm just working. So um, I, get, I get that. So um, I just like, let's have some empathy and perspective on that and, and use the tools that we have in our parenting toolbox to help make that better. Um, if you do feel like your kid is really suffering and unable to moderate their their tech use, you know, the first thing you should probably do is just discuss it with your pediatrician. Um, it's totally possible to get help with that. There are a lot of um, therapists and people who are now working with tech addiction. Um, kids who have ADHD or who are neurally atypical in some way, you know, when you are wired slightly differently, you respond to anything that's stimulating neurally a little different. Um, so I think it is important to know your kid, to know what their limits are and to set limits that are appropriate for that child, which kind of stinks because if you have one kid who's neurally typical and one kid who's not, that might mean having different rules. Right. Um, and you know what? You just, you know, your kids, you know, what works and exactly. you have to do what's best for them. I mean, that's one of the things it's like when you're a parent, part of your job is like just being a brick wall that they beat themselves against because yes. you make these rules to keep them safe and healthy. And they're just like, oh, I resent you for they it. They hate you for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I was thinking back, you know, of what you were saying and, you know, my husband works in addiction a lot, uh, um, more of the chemical addiction. Um, you know, he's a clinical psychologist and that's kind of his specialty and his, um, you know, his population that he works with. And, you know, he's always talked to me about, you know, when he kind of compares that to, let's say, tech addiction and talking about the dopamine release, you know, and getting that dopamine fill and how they just want to keep getting more and more and more. And I was thinking back about that conversation with those moms and thinking, you know, they were kind of asking, well, how do we know when too much screen time is too much? Like, how, how do we know when they're actually getting addicted to it? Like, what are the signs that we can look for to know, okay, this is, we're over the top now. Like, it's not just a preferred activity. They're, you know, being overstimulated, whatever the case is. Um, is there something that that parents can look for to know, okay, we've already, we've hit this and we're, we're officially in a, an addiction stage now? Um, well, I think you you know what when you see it, right? When it just feels really out of control. Sure. And, and there are many elements of your not just your child's life, but your family's life that are being affected. Um, and I think there are things you can do within your family to kind of try and walk that back. Um, the most important thing that parents can do in terms of um, trying to temper their kids' tech use is to model the relationship with technology that you want your kids to have. Yes. I'm so and glad you brought that up. That's, um, that's sometimes difficult when we work from home on screens all the time. Yep. Um, but I think we can work around that if we are very transparent about what we're doing and we narrate what we're doing all the time, like to the degree that's going to be annoying, right? Right. Or like, I know that I'm looking at my phone 
while I'm in the kitchen with you guys, but I'm doing that because my boss just texted me. And as you know, there's like three or four people that if they text me, I, I need to at least read it right away. Right. Um, so that they understand that there is a decision-making framework, right? If I had just gotten an email from Best Buy, I'm, I'm not going to look away from you to look at that. True. Um, but if it's during working hours and my boss emails me, I have to read it. Um, right. I am not going to have my phone at the table while we're eating because I think that's rude and I want to prioritize this time with you. Um, I am going to have a one device at a time rule. So if we're watching a movie, we're not also going to be looking at our phones. Mm-hmm. I do too. Um, if my kids see me kicking back on the couch looking at my phone, I'm going to say, hey, I'm reading my Kindle app. I'm reading a book. Right. Right. So they know what I'm doing. Or I'm going to say, you know what? My brain is kind of fuzzy. I'm just like looking at dog videos on Instagram. Do you want to look at them with me? Right. Yes. To say, like, I, there's a purpose to what I'm doing. Like, yeah, I'm looking at Instagram videos and I'm doing that to decompress. That is the purpose of why I'm looking at Instagram videos. Right. And it comes back full circle to the conversation piece of having those conversations and being open with your kids about what you're doing. Um, you know, I, I remember years ago I had a client who um, it was a family session. And, you know, I said, well, how much time do you spend with your kids? This was years ago, but how much time do you spend with your kids? And the dad said all the time, we, we, you know, do this together and we do this together and this together. And every night we, we always watch this one show together on TV. I don't remember what it was, but then the daughter spoke up and said, I think she was about sixth grade. And she said, yeah, dad, we do all those things. And we watch the, that TV show every night together, but you're always on your phone at the same time, ignoring us. So even though he was in the same room and in his mind, he was doing all these things with these kids, with his kids. And, but he was always separated because, you know, they've noticed that there was like this, you know, the attachment was broken because he was on a screen the whole time. Um, and they were, they were kind of doing it as, as a passive way to spend time together. You know what I mean? Um, and that communication. I would suggest, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're fine. Um, I was going to suggest, and in, you know, under that, that sort of um, topic of modeling. And this is not something that a lot of people want to hear. And I actually hate having this conversation with my kids. But I think that before we get too um, finger pointy at like those kids and their damn phones, that we really need to be willing to have conversations periodically with our kids where, where you say like, am I on my phone too much? Like, does that bother you? Right. Who are kids? And if their answer is yes, like we need to hear that. Absolutely. Um, And if we can't change our behavior because we're always on our phone because we're always working all the time, then we need to have a conversation about that, about maybe making a greater effort to, you know, bifurcate our work life and our family life. Right. But um, those are conversations that are worth having. And um, I have never asked my kids that question and liked their answer. (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, I feel like it's important to be honest about it, right? Because it's something that we all struggle with. And I think a lot of the reason that parents don't want to have ominous conversations about it is because we do feel judged sometimes. But I mean, I'm... I wrote a book about this and I, I've literally never had a conversation with this with my kids where I've liked their answer. Like we can all be doing better. We can all try harder. Absolutely. Modeling the effort with them and modeling the fact and, you know, taking the, making the effort to say like, I care what you think and I care about my relationship with you. And if, if I need to try and moderate this, this aspect of my behavior to, so that, you know, I'm hearing you, like, I think that that's positive. And it also sets a norm that if you're willing to do it for them, that the expectation is they should 
also be willing to do it for you and for the other people who show them that same respect, you know, exactly. Yeah. And I like the boundaries. I like, you know, I've heard those a lot. You know, even we have the same, you know, no, no screens at the table, um, no two, two screens at the same time or two devices at the same time. Um, You know, and it's hard for me because most of my I mean, I, I do have private practice and I, I do teach, uh, you know, at the university level outside of, of social media. But, you know, as you and I know both, I mean, my social media is is, is my job right now. <laughs> you know, my yeah. my podcast, I'm promoting my podcast or I'm promoting a blog I just wrote or I'm taking a picture at an event that I, I went to or, you know, whatever the case is. And, and, you know, I'm on my phone a lot, like you said, for work or my computer, one or the other. And it's it's hard to differentiate between you know, I'm doing this for work and, and like, oh, but mom, you're on the, your phone the whole time, which, which obviously then kicks in the mom guilt. But, yes. um, you know, which is a whole nother topic. But um, but then it's also, well, I, I have to because I'm getting paid to write this blog post or I'm getting paid to, you know, take the social media picture or whatever it is. That's a rational. You can't do it either. Response. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, that's, that's a rational, reasonable response. Like I'm on I'm on Instagram right now or I'm on WordPress because it's an aspect of my job. Right. Right. And I mean, and I've had conversations with my kids, like if you love gaming so much, learn about gaming and write code, you know, yeah. like if you love the artwork behind it or the storytelling behind it, like make it your job, you know, like, yes. I like the internet. So guess what? Like now I get paid to mess around on the internet, you know, right. and, it, <laughs> um, and, and I think that, that you can, it, I don't know. I think that promoting those, those deeper conversations about how you approach things, how you think about things are, are valuable. And they're valuable when your kids are in first grade and they're valuable when your kids are in 11th grade. Like, True. I think taking a more, um, not, I, I think critical is the wrong word because that, that implies like you're like a negative way, but like taking a, a, a contextual, sort of um, perspective on how you're doing things and why you're doing things and how it works. And um, that's just a good way to approach your problems, your life, how you do things, you know, and, um, and certainly your tech use, because it's, it is almost impossible at this point to be a functional, successful adult without using technology. And it's another way that like the addiction side of it is really difficult. Like you can live a very full and happy life without alcohol or cocaine or whatever. Like you can live a great life without it. You don't need it, but it, there's almost no way to be a functional and successful adult without technology. Yes. You have that. You have to put yourself in a place where like you, it can be managed. Um, Right. And they're promoting it now. I mean, coding classes and I mean, there's tech classes everywhere for kids on how to do this or that, you know, and um, it's we live in this, like you said, this digital age where it's impossible to ignore. Like it's it's like the rain, like, you know, it's 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 going to be a part of our lives. We just have to determine the boundaries and the functionality of how we're going to allow it to be in our lives and how much and, you know, I think that's where that's where the conversation really needs to take place. And I think it's, I think it's a really natural extension of what you're already doing, right? Like you have your values as a family, you have those things that you um, prioritize and you create an extension of that in terms of like the digital citizen that you want your child to be, like the type of person you want them to be in the world when you're not there, when they're at school, when they're with their friends, when they're on the baseball field or whatever, like, you know, the kind of person that you want to raise and they're going to be working, learning, writing, reading, (laughs) you know, communicating Mm -hmm. in that digital space. And so the more you can, um, you know, communicate and model 
who you are and who you um, expect them to be. I mean, they're going to be their own person totally, and they should be, but just in terms of like how you expect them to treat other people, um, how you expect them to um, behave in the world, the the courtesy and respect that they show others, um, the amount of, of effort that they put into the things that they're working on, that kind of that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you have so many good nuggets in your book. Um, I have it, like, like I said, right here in front of me. And I mean, there's so many more things. I feel like I could talk to you for a very long time about all the things you wrote about. Um, you know, but you let me hit on predators just before we log off. Cause yes. the, the one thing I would want to leave you with in terms of, of predators is like that. I don't want to alarm anyone because there's so much out there about the internet that's just really trying to scare parents, you know, and I, I don't, I am a very facts over fear kind of person. Um, there are definitely just bad actors out there, like in life and on the, and online. Um, and it's important to understand that when we're having conversation with kids about stranger danger or about predators online, we often frame them in such a way that it makes it seem like they're these like evil monsters out there prowling for kids and they're going to pull them into their clown vans and drive away. Right. Right. Um, and the reality is that the, the predators that are functioning online find our kids and interact with our kids in such a way that by the time the, you know, the offense occurs, they don't really feel like strangers anymore. Mm, right. So, um, I mean, I have a lot of people that I know sort of a, a little bit, through my online stuff, right? And um, that familiarity breeds a degree of, of feeling comfortable, right? Like you and I have never met in person, but I need right. to do a podcast. So right. I, mean, I, I just want, um, when we talk about predators online with our kids, to be aware that you can't always be sure who people are, that people who ask you to keep secrets, people who ask you to do things that you know aren't okay, that... Um, you, you know, that these could be adults and that these adults will become familiar enough with your kids that your kids feel comfortable, that it makes them second guess or question things um, that they know are probably not good ideas because this person seems like their friend or someone that they want to be friends with or that they appreciate the attention that they're getting. So I just want hmm. parents to be aware of the fact that like maybe reframing those conversations away from strangers to anyone who's asking you to do this. Now, obviously you don't ever want to friend anyone who you don't know. You want to be able to verify that you, um, someone's identity in any way that you can. Yes. Um, Great point. But the bottom line is like, there are people really good at catfishing, you know, they're really good at making you think that they are someone that they're not. And adults can fall for that and kids can fall for that too. Absolutely. no, so great point. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I know we didn't really touch upon, uh, we did we touch upon it, but I know we didn't go into full detail. Maybe we'll have to do like an Instagram live or <laughs> another episode because there's so much content in your book that is just phenomenal. Um, you know, but you know, as a mental health therapist, you know, talking about you know mental health and just you know um, how screens or devices affect kids, um, you know, and even just the, the biological component of, of their brain, you know, I feel like when my son watches even a te- like one television show or even two television shows or is on his iPad for, you know, a half hour or something, I feel like he's more hyperactive after he does the iPad than he is if he doesn't use it at all. You know, there's, or just if, if I go to bed at night 
and I'm on my screen right until I go to bed, I have insomnia. Like I can't sleep as well than if, it, uh, or if I put my phone away and, you know, don't use my screen time before an hour before I actually go to sleep. Like I have a much better sleep. Like we didn't get to any of that kind of stuff. So I just want to tease everybody yeah. that we're going to have a part yeah. two coming up. <laughs> behind all of those things that you said. And I, um, I interviewed a really, really super smart and knowledgeable child psychiatrist about that very thing about um, stimulation and seeming like they're, they're really amped up after they use tech. And he was like, you got to build breaks in, man, because the longer that they use it, the less able that they are, um, the less able they are to withstand any degree of boredom. Yeah. Yeah. Build in that boredom tolerance and so that they can switch back and forth between that higher degree of neural stimulation to something that is less stimulating, but, you know, requires more focus. So exactly. Um, well, there's lots of cool stuff still to talk about. And yeah, well, where can people where can people buy your book and where can people look for it so they can they can read up on all these things that we've been talking about today and even more so? I mean, you can buy it pretty much anywhere. It's still in many bookstores. It was published in 2019, so you can you can generally find it on the shelves at you know Barnes and Noble or any of your larger book retailers. Um, and it's available online through Walmart, Amazon. Barnes and Noble, um, Target, wherever you should be able to find it online pretty much anywhere. Wonderful. And then where can people find you online? Website, um, social media, et cetera. Um, the website is rantsfrommommyland.com, although I'm really terrible about updating it um, anymore. Um, primarily on Instagram, sometimes still on Facebook. I'm kind of in the writing cave right now, so I'm not very responsive, but um, the best place to find me online is on Instagram and that's at Juliana W. Minor. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to um, educate us today. And I, I know I learned a lot. Um, it's raising, my pleasure. Yeah, thank no, thank you. you. Raising a Screen Smart Kid, Embrace the Good and Avoid the Bad in the Digital Age is your book. Um, I really highly recommend and, and anyone who's listening right now um, to pick up this book. It's it's really good. It's very captivating and it's engaging. And I've been learning a lot. We, been, we didn't even touch on cyberbullying. So there's just a lot in your book that... Um, that we didn't touch on today that I, I feel like parents really would benefit from. So if you're out there and you're listening, I highly recommend, you know, picking up a copy. It's, it's, re- it's a really good one that for kids of all ages, uh, even if you have little ones, read it now because you're going to need it. <laughs> so anyway, Juliana, thank you so much for being here today and sharing um, your time with us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.